Welcome to the Loose Filter Podcast, everybody. This is episode number 105, titled Stylistic Transformation, How Blues Evolved into Funk. And I am your host, Stuart Sims, and in this episode I sit down with Dave Gant and have a conversation about how not just blues evolved into funk, but also how music in the United States went from a folk tradition, you know, in our homes to uh, a shared cultural phenomenon of recorded music. And along the way, we talk about how one particular style, American blues, changed incrementally through the decades until by the early 70s, we ended up with something totally different and wholly new in the style of funk music. It's a really great conversation. I think you're going to enjoy it a lot if you've never thought about how, uh, you know, musical styles evolve, how musical ideas get changed in conversations from one artist to another. And we take this one example of this developmental art through the 20th century of American blues and look at it and listen to some great examples. So I think you'll dig it a lot. Uh, if you uh, enjoy what you hear on our podcast, I should mention, please feel free to drop us a line. You can email at loosefilter at gmail.com. That's loosefilter, one word, at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, the stats say lots of folks are downloading and listening, and we would love to know if you like what you're hearing, if you have any feedback for us you want us to consider, or any ideas you have for future episodes, things you'd like to hear us talk about, or any other feedback, again, loosefilter.com. As always, you can find all the podcasts and more at our website, which is loosefilter.com. And uh, you can find our whole podcast archive on our SoundCloud page, which is soundcloud.com slash loosefilter. Uh, I think the episode pretty much uh, explains itself, so I don't need to set it up anymore. Uh, I apologize for talking a lot more than Dave on this one, but this was one he uh, was new to him, a lot of this stuff. So it was a lot of uh, me kind of answering his questions. But anyway, without any further ado, hope you enjoy the episode. So the, the thing about this topic, though, truly, that I, I find myself saying to, uh, well, to people all the time, but to my students, too, is that they they can't believe the hype that genrefication is a word I mm-hmm. use of music is mainly uh, for goals of, you know, commodification yeah, is to it, sell things. That, that music is all, certainly Western music, broadly speaking, uh, is all built out of the same stuff. I mean, I would say the same DNA. That's, but that's, that's sort of been a recurring theme in our podcast. Yeah. <laughs> really. Well, that's kind of the whole loose yeah. filter sort of perspective, a big part of it. But it's not even, I think, appropriate to say it's the same DNA because that's too specific. It's the same, like, it's macro level built. Yeah, or, <laughs> you or cells. Or, I mean, yeah. it's 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 uh, uh, it's not even, you don't even have to get down to, like, the, the, the cellular or atomic level to see how similar it is and so it, it got me thinking about um uh you know because i'm a professor so i label things but stylistic <laughs> transformation like literally how does like you hear if you learn anything about the you know musical history the history of works of music yeah. like there's a there's an evolution that's ongoing it's just artists who are making music and other artists who are hearing it and responding to right. it, and making their own music 
but at some point, it is fair to say it's not just a marketing term to say that like this style or idiom or mode of expression. Y- is, genres are a thing. Yeah, they, they are a <laughs> thing. So, they, but but they are not as as hyper specific as maybe uh, the marketers and you know uh, the the record industry has convinced us that they yeah. are. Like when I hear people arguing over sub 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 genres of electronica or well, you know, I mean, metal, I, or those are I, mostly I just think, useful for for the DJs, right? Though, because it keeps the because it's like if it's a certain BPM, it's this genre, you know. Yeah, uh, so well, it's, it's, it's not it's, just it's a useful tool in that sense. Yeah. Right? Now, now we're gonna have a micro genre argument because yeah. I'm like, it's not just BPM. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's got a lot to do with it. It does. It does have a lot to do. You're right. And I mean, the transition. And for the people who are really, I mean, like your true fans, you know, they they do distinguish and they do know which, you know, particular slice uh, that they like. But but I thought it would be interesting to take just a chunk of music that is, uh, you know, genetically related. Like just just take a family branch off the family tree of American music and and look at how how do those styles transform such that it's no longer the thing we used to call it, but it's now this new thing, right? And so I wanted to do an episode about uh, the American ur music. <laughs> if I, what? <laughs> that's too obscure, isn't it? Ur music. You are. I oh, oh, I was just. Ur I, music. I you were just really yeah. frustrated for a minute. music. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't use that. Well, because you know that's what I that's what I do when when uh, I'm frustrated. I. I <laughs> Not like a caveman. Uh, <laughs> Known you a long time. Uh, no, like, like proto music. That'd be a better yeah. way to put it. Which is which is blues, right? Mm-hmm. And and most people know. I mean, you've heard that rock came out of the blues, and blues is American roots music, right? Uh, in, you know, in the literal sense of that term, or our source music. And I thought it'd be fun to actually go. Okay, if we start with with what is really blues, like original blues. First of all, what does that mean specifically? And then. If it is this proto music or this parent music, like how? How did it happen? What are the changes that turn blues into, you know, rock and roll or or something else? So, uh, so that's what I thought we'd talk about. Okay, I, th- uh, I, th- I thought we'd start with blues and 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 go forward. We cover about a about a. Uh, seventy-five years. Okay. Of American musical that history. That seems doable in thirty-five minutes. That's. <laughs> we'll be Let's longer than thirty-five minutes. I bet. Uh, uh, and this is, and this is, I should be clear to, uh, to anybody, uh, listening that this is just broad sweep, you no, know, these are all the defining moments. Yeah. This is a this comprehensive, is, this is all you need to know. Objectively, uh, thorough, uh, history of this music. In 40 minutes, you'll be an expert. It, no, it's definitely a broad sweep. And any of the examples that, uh, that, uh, uh, we're going to listen to in the course of this conversation are are simply that they're just examples. They're not the original thing or the most significant. I mean, sometimes this, it may this be the disclaimer most... should actually be for this podcast as a whole, right? Right. <laughs> we're like, just picking we things that represent that demonstrate yeah. what we're what we're talking about. Because the reality is, like I mentioned, I mean, it's creative work. It's just a conversation longitudinally through yeah. time from generation to generation. And uh, I was reading a, an article about the whole Tom Petty getting the co-writer credit on Sam Smith's <laughs> song. And did Sam Smith steal it intentionally or was it just in his brain or is it just a common chord progression? And, you know, that's just how it happens. I mean, as an artist, you don't even know sometimes what has affected yeah. you and, and that it got, you know, sort of stuck back in your brain somewhere and it's going to come out and express itself. But uh, anyway, it's fun. It's fun to look at how. Uh, uh, in a more like explicit way, look back and see how this evolution occurred. 
And uh, I should also note that any of the genre terms that we use uh, or the stylistic terms like folk blues or classic blues or rhythm and blues are real loose and have very fuzzy edges and very porous boundaries. So they are better described as, uh, they're better called descriptors, I think, than labels more, more properly, you know. Uh, because I would call at the at the end of this episode, I think I'm confident that uh, anyone who listens all the way through, we, you can call it all blues if you're going to put it in a taxonomy. It's all one thing with just you know orders and families and and so forth. Really within it. Oh, I think so. I I think well, when you when you hear where we go, you'll hear how genetically related this stuff all right. is. Uh, let's see if I persuade Color me you. skeptical. Let's see, if, <laughs> let's see if I persuade you. Okay. Okay. Enough monologuing. Uh, so Dave uh, is going to play the foil to my <laughs> narrating here because this is not a uh, uh, an area of listening that he's done a whole lot in yet. I'm hoping to whet well, his appetite. Well, to... about halfway through, I'll, I'll be familiar. He'll with pick things. up. He'll start yeah. talking a lot yeah. more. So uh, uh, hopefully he'll be asking the questions that may occur to those of you while you're listening. But anyway, so where do we start? Where do we start with this conversation? It's about 115 years ago, really, about the turn of the 20th century. Uh, it's when you started to see <clears throat> music in the United States uh, emerge from homes and into a public sphere uh, in a way that we would recognize with, with popular music. And a necessary thing about popular music is that it's commercial. It exists in the marketplace. Right. And it's really not, we don't, the kind of narrative that we talk about when we look at this stuff with American popular music, it's inextricably linked to the marketplace. So that's the best place I think to start is where did music that was truly folk music in the sense that it was non-commercial, it was not recorded. It was music that people made at home in their towns for themselves, uh, for their enjoyment or for, to accompany whatever ceremonies or parties or something like that. Uh, where, where did that music move into a larger sphere and become uh, commercialized to whatever degree where listeners were listening to recordings and it's it's the music became a thing unto itself right a recorded mm -hmm. artifact that could be that could have a life of its own right right and travel to listeners that were non-local to your the distance of your voice and guitar uh, so uh, that takes us back to around you know like the first couple of decades of the 20th century with what we loosely call uh, uh, classic blues, or I'm sorry, folk blues. <laughs> classic blues is second. Folk what? blues, uh, which which in the term is is you know you, it's pretty self evident. It's folk music, literally, that people were making in their homes in the tradition that we call the blues, which of course comes out of the African American experience of being slaves and then former slaves and uh, the culture that was created that was uh, to a great deal uh, musically expressed, song based. Uh, uh, and there are also some people divide these folk blues into folk blues and country blues mm -hmm. because it's also connected to uh, uh, like Appalachian roots right. music. And so that's there's a, there's an inner mingling uh, there early on. And so especially guitarists who, who play this material now will distinguish kind of between country blues and folk blues. But for our uh, conversation, we can look for at my it naive ears in, for your naive ears. We can look at it in one broad category called folk blues and uh, a great early example of that is the immortal lead belly so this is uh lead belly playing guitar and singing 
a track called Where Did You Sleep Last Night? Black girl, black girl, don't lie to me. Tell me where did you sleep last night? In the pines, in the pines, oh, where the sun never shines. I wish you were there all night through. Black girl, black girl. That, that song I do know, actually. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's really famous. You yeah. Know? Uh, and a lot of these, I think, as we go through, you're, you're going to recognize like, for them. For me, uh, like, I would just call that blues. I, I guess I don't know enough to, to genreify it. I if guess. you were going to call anything just blues, that would be the most, I think, accurate kind of music to call just plain old blues music. Okay, good, good. Because that's, that's, <laughs> that's the, the earliest version that, that comes out of, you know, into the popular sphere where people are playing it as as musicians rather than than just as people and you know the characteristics of it are it's pretty straightforward music a lot of times it's just one performer with a guitar that's its most mm-hmm. characteristic manifestation um but you could be playing banjo or mandolin or any i mean anything that harmonica anything that you had you know around that you had a proficiency with is an instrument that would be appropriate for for folk blues or country blues um, so stylistically, those are some pretty obvious things. The harmonic language is pretty evident uh, mm-hmm. there already. What we recognize is blues chord changes are already in the style. The form has already emerged, uh, most particularly what we call 12-bar blues, yeah. where the music happens in, in three strophes or chunks of uh, four bars each with a particular chord progression that's usually followed through those three strophes uh is already all in place so all those hallmarks are there really early on with this music another great example of it is uh robert johnson oh yeah uh who of course is is the very famous mississippi delta guitarist who only recorded the one album and died real young and so forth but here's a little bit uh, a little bit of his music this is some more uh folk blues So maybe, maybe I actually am better versed in this music than I thought. Yeah. But I'd always call this Delta blues. Uh, that would be correct. That okay. is a kind of folk blues. Uh, folk blues have a, a number of kind of subgenres that uh-huh. could be accurately Atlanta blues. And I mean, they're all regional styles, but they all fall pretty clearly under this umbrella. I mean, like, uh, you know, Robert Johnson isn't dissimilar enough from Lead Belly to really call them different kinds of music at all. Yeah. It's, it's both Unless I guess you're a true connoisseur and where <laughs> Yeah, I mean, really, are... really, and that's really, like, that's like if you're a guitarist who yeah. is really trying to learn these styles, you're going to get into that level of detail, and you will make a distinction at that point. But uh, I don't think that, that uh, sort of that level of real um, discernment in the styles is significant to what we're talking about. They're both basically yeah. folk blues, you know? Okay. Uh, and what's interesting is how long the tradition of folk blues kind of extends, because that recording was 1937, mm-hmm. when uh, two other 
new genres had already kind of grown out of folk blues. So it's these things aren't even linear. They're right. overlapping and they they're they're they feed back into each other. So you know, one one kind of style will birth a new kind of style and that style will influence its parent which will then, you know, kind of become something else. So in that period of overlap while artists are still working in various sort of regional variations on folk blues, we uh, a style emerges that we call classic blues. That's probably the recordings that most people think of when they think of quote unquote so blues music. What, what is blues classic music. blues? Then? Classic right. blues had its heyday in the 1920s, and it's mainly female singers. Okay, and there we call them the blues priestesses. And the music was the first feature that you notice about it is it's much more commercialized. It's much more polished. There's a backing band, which isn't okay. always the case with she's it's the woman is a lead singer with a band behind her. But also the things that we recognize as really characteristic blues things like uh, scatting and, and, and growling and different vocal affects. Those all emerge in classic blues. It's also the themes tend to be a little bit different because it was a little more um, cosmopolitan or metropolitan music. So how, how so? Uh, it was it was more about city life than about country life. Okay. So and because it was women singing it, obviously it was uh, kind of symptomatic of a more liberated decade, the Roaring Twenties, of course. And uh, the Twenties are the first decade when you see black culture really emerge in major cities like St. Louis or Chicago or New York in Harlem. Uh, and this music was uh, very emblematic of that. So let's listen to a recording of Bessie Smith, probably the greatest of the classic blues singers. No. So I'm hearing the rhythms more explicit and less implicit than uh, yes. than before, but we still don't have a drum track. No, all. no, no, per frequently no percussion okay. instruments. Yeah, was that just because they were hard to record back then? I don't know. That... That's a good question. Okay, because I mean, I know with... they would be on. The I would guess that it has as much to do with accessibility as anything. They didn't have drums, and drums were. I don't even know when drum kits. Know, like became a thing. I mean, uh, well, I, we'll I have to find that. that. I would say probably around this time they would start to emerge because what happened after classic blues. But before we talk about that, let's let's let's, okay. let's reflect okay. on what we heard. Uh, so you hear a lot of things that are uh, really characteristic of what we, we we would consider the blues style, and things that are very influential decades later in her delivery, particularly among. Um, uh, uh, female singers, you know, even like Janis Joplin in the '60s, mm -hmm. who were clearly very heavily influenced by what these blues singers did. Um, uh, and you also hear, though, in the structure, starts to sound familiar. You pointed out that w we listened to. I'm not sure which excerpt's going to end up on the episode, <laughs> but it gets to. There's a trumpet solo. Yeah. There's a solo in there, and that's important to note because in 32 bar form, they're using these eight bar chunks. And uh, there's room in there for one of the instrumentalists to take a solo, which yeah. becomes a very salient feature of one of the children of classic blues. But with the um, end of the 1920s and, of course, the Great Depression and a lot of social changes, this style of music kind of uh, really waned in its popularity and its influence. But it really is the first big 
commercial musical style because mm-hmm. 1921 is when the RCA Victrola hit the market which was the first real consumer priced phonograph yeah and so it was at the very beginning of the 1920s when Americans started buying records yeah and that became their primary musical listening experience and source of musical culture yeah. and it, it's worth uh <laughs> diverting us just a little bit sure to, to to note that like uh the the earlier forms of recording I think we've talked about in previous podcasts were were not s- commercial they weren't stable like you couldn't right. have for a long time the Victrola right. didn't do anything why in the nineteen teens was George Hamilton right. Green famous as a xylophonist because cones could record the xylophone yeah. well it had um, nothing to do with liking the xylophone well, it's got its appeal <laughs> how, about, how about that for <laughs> listeners who didn't know that there yeah. was a time in American history the when a xylophonist was the, was the most famous musician in the country it's a golden era that will never end uh <laughs> Bring back the xylophone. <laughs> That's really what this podcast is. A, it's a stealth. <laughs> yeah. It's a Trojan horse for okay, but, uh, xylophone. But yeah, like th- that was uh, prior to that. Most um, home like playback devices also were recording devices. Victrola wasn't. I think that's uh, it's sort of an important distinction, right? We've talked we talked about that before. Yeah. That Edison, when you know the early phonographs were intended to be like creation well, devices, had like ten plays, not consumption devices. Yeah. There were wax cylinders yeah. you could record at home, and so right. So this was the era now of consumer music, Shellac. consumer <laughs> music, yes. uh, and also uh, uh, another important piece of technology we would be remiss not to note is the invention of a. Uh, uh, I'm going to use the wrong word. You have to correct me. A membrane-based microphone. Uh, uh, a diaphragm, a microphone with a diaphragm, what we would recognize as the modern microphone. A transducer? Yeah, a transducer. A transducer microphone. Thank you. Uh, that was like 1914, I think. I'm going to have to look it up. But uh, They were PAs before that? What were, what were they using before? Well, that? they were using cones. They were yeah. using uh, all kinds of different things. But what we would recognize is like 1914. The modern, like, dynamic yeah, the modern, microphone. Yeah, dynamic yeah. mic. And then so it, it makes sense that a few years later you get uh, a popular genre of recorded music based around the vocalist. Uh, and I would I would speculate that uh, the fact that so many female vocalists were so prominent may have to do with the microphones did better with that frequency range. Uh, you, you can tell on the Bessie Smith recordings, even the one that we just played was from the late third, 39, I think, uh, that that the band, the, the mid and low frequencies are They're real yeah. muddy, but yeah. her voice is super clear. Uh, and, and so whether... It was a conscious creative choice or not. The technology encouraged you mm-hmm. to put the vocalist front and center and whatever she was doing yeah. was the primary. Well, there's you know, a whole conversation thing. to hear about how what you've been able to tr- capture has influenced what people did capture. But And then therefore that became but the thing. But let's not that people, go yeah. down that. Okay, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's, too, that's too big a digression. That's a whole other set of conversations. Uh, but anyway, so that's that's classic blues. And uh, uh, I think that's that's uh, music that a lot of people would recognize. And then in the, the 40s, the blues as a style is kind of eclipsed by jazz. We get the era of big band jazz mm-hmm. becomes kind of the, the staple of popular music and where our popular songs come from. Uh, uh, jazz and also musical theater. We can't forget things like Gershwin songs in, yeah. the, in the 30s and 40s were huge popular hits. And they were spun right out of the shows that George and I were Gershwin wrote or uh, any of the great uh, musical theater composers of that time. Uh, But in the very early 1950s, we get a resurgence of a blues-based music, but it is a blues that has been influenced by what has been going on with big band dance music. 
Uh, it is a blues that is beefed up a little bit harmonically mm-hmm. because it's learned from its cousin jazz, but it is also a blues that is much more rhythmic. Like you mentioned uh, in the classic blues that we listen to, no percussion instruments. Yeah. So we have the drum set is now in the band. The tempos are faster, and the emphasis on 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 pulse, on rhythmic patterns, is much greater. And that's a uh, form of blues that is loosely called rhythm and blues, and really emerges like 1950, 1951. The other thing about rhythm and blues that's notable is the instrumentation that the band sort of coalesce around, with a drum set, one or two guitars, bass couple of saxophones and a lead singer. It's that a, a, a yeah, a, a consort of instruments that that we would recognize. So I have a couple examples uh, to show uh, uh, what this early style of rhythm and blues is, and and we talk about how it differs from classic blues. Uh, this first example is Ray Charles. Hey, I got a woman way over town. Good to me. Oh yeah. So um, we got we got a drum track now. I'm hearing a bigger band. Uh, we've moved up quite a few BPMs. Yeah, well, and it's it's we've moved the tempo up so much that the emphasis in blues was on the backbeats, but uh-huh. it was one, two, three, four. Now it's one, two, three, four. Yeah, one, two, three. They almost sound like upbeats. Yeah. to a moderate pulse. So the tempo's considerably up. Um, uh, the other thing that's really important to notice is that syncopation. You kept hearing the band play. Uh, 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 some version of that. Uh, that is where we hear the, probably it's best called the Afro-Cuban influence, right. but I would say in general, the Caribbean influence of that syncopation, what is often called in like Latin jazz, the clave rhythm, D, 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 da, 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 da. Duh, duh, right? It's very famous. So yeah. that that's variations on that syncop- syncopation pattern. That has also now found its way in and contributed greatly to the liveliness and the kind of kineticism of this music. It's not just that the tempo is faster. It's that the... How did the, that come from Cuba, I guess? Well, uh, Miami, I would guess, through clubs yeah. in Miami and up the East Coast. Yeah. 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 I mean, there was... I mean, there was a, a, a... Especially in the 50s, Havana was a huge nightclub spot and Americans would go there. I mean, 60 miles away from uh, Miami, you know? It's, well, in my whole lifetime, it's been off limits. Right. So, right? <laughs> Until now. I figured uh, it was like on another planet. <laughs> right. And that, that would be my guess. I would have to look it up, but that's the obvious connection is that, that all those Caribbean uh, influences probably to a great degree came through Havana and then Miami and then up the East Coast. Uh, and then, of course, once they land in Atlanta or New York or Chicago, it's gonna, everybody's going to hear it. And so it's going to be in the water. So that also contributed to it. Uh, here's another example of, uh, of, of what we would consider classic rhythm and blues. This is Bo Diddley. Bo Yeah, I, I, I know. <laughs> it's just funny you're, you're saying like the clave rhythm. And it's like to me that's that's Bo Diddley rhythm. 
you know that's that's what i i think of it as right and it well and in that one it was really clear i mean the guitar was john 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 yeah but that's what i've always called that john john but you can really hear that that at, at by this point in the 1950s the music is really becoming a gumbo we're getting a lot of influences in there uh but but it's it's i i really you can still hear at least to my ear that it's blues music it's up tempo blues but the things that i hear that are same it's still based around the vocalist and the lead instrument is still the guitar mm-hmm. which goes all the way back to folk blues the forms are the same M- mainly your 32 bar form your manifestation of working in eight bar chunks and your 12-bar blues, especially in that Bo Diddley example, uh, are still there. So they're still working in the same uh, formal expressions. And so there there are like, you know, some direct DNA transmission that that if we had just played a little bit of, you know, Robert Johnson and then put Bo Diddley next to it, you might have said, well, those are totally different kinds of music. Um, uh, hopefully, maybe the connection is, is a little more audible. I, I, I think it seems pretty like... I hope so. I hope so. Pretty uh, obvious. <laughs> but I, I don't know. You know, I do struggle about how uh, sort of obvious to be about these things because you and I are both trained musicians, and so things that we may perceive as obvious are not obvious to a lot of listeners. In fact, it's never occurred to them. Like, I talk to a lot of uh, uh, people who are, are just music listeners, which is to say most people, and it hasn't occurred to them to think about something like form, that music has form, and that uh, most music in, say, one style is in either similar or same well, kinds of Which is of funny forms. because people people are – everybody's familiar with forms. Oh, yeah. Like, they're not – You're aware of like them. <laughs> well, like I, I, I have said many times, when you hear a new song – the first thing that you recognize is that it's a song, and that's literally a formal title you know of it's going. a yeah. kind of strophic form is a song. And so you have an expectation there for how this sound is going to be organized in a fundamental way. And uh, a lot of, of people who are even avid music listeners don't know that those formal organizations may be unique to the kind of music that they like. They may not be universal or yeah or intrinsic (laughs) or 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 found you know everywhere uh and i also find as somebody who does a lot of composed music concert music uh like for in my case with orchestras and bands uh that the older forms the really long narrative forms what we call the developmental music like symphonies Mm -hmm. uh people have a hard time following because they can't grasp the form uh, intuitively, which is what we do with most of our popular music, even though we don't know that we know yeah. that it's a song, <laughs> we know that it's a song. If you could, if you could, <laughs> if you could take our current song forms that we use right now and transport them back in time, two hundred years, maybe you'll be terribly confused by them. <laughs> I yeah, well that's true. Well, and if you want to have that thought experiment, I think what would confuse everybody are the timbres. Yeah. I mean, I think electronic <laughs> sounds would just freak a lot of people out. We're accustomed to a vastly larger timbral palette than any human beings. Yeah, we, we kind of accept have, anything. Who know? have ever lived. Oh, right. neat. <laughs> well, and I always yeah. laugh because, you know, if I if I do new music on stage, it, it takes uh, not much to provoke an audience, some kind of negative reaction out of listeners. But if you put weirdo, crazy sound worlds into a movie soundtrack, as long as it's appropriate to the narrative, people are like, cool, yeah. <laughs> <Blah>. <laughs> We will take, you know, Ligeti Sound Mass in the middle of 2001. Sure. Okay, because okay. space sounds like... People freaked out at, at the first showings of 2001. Like, 
bad example. <laughs> well, you can't always go with the contemporaneous yeah. reaction. I yeah. mean, I would say very shortly thereafter, it just became the music that's in that movie. <laughs> yeah. And certainly as a kid, when I saw it, I didn't think, ah! You, what is that sound coming through? Then I just... You clipped. You clipped. I clipped. Well, we'll turn down the gain on that blip. But uh, anyway, I don't even know what we're talking about now. We're talking about rhythm and 2001. Movies. Oh, oh okay. movies. It's my favorite movie. Welcome the to the movie podcast. <laughs> Uh, we're talking about rhythm and blues. So, of course, the obvious next example uh, out of rhythm and blues uh, in terms of, uh, you know, generally speaking, stylistic transformation is rock and roll. And uh, when, when I played the Ray Charles and the Bo Diddley, a lot of people may have been thinking, wait, that's rock and roll. That's not rhythm. No, that's rhythm and blues. Uh, because when you cross over into rock and roll, there is a... Uh, uh, real focus on the drum set Mm -hmm. that is not there. Rhythm and blues is still guitar driven, guitar and vocalist driven. Uh, But when you get to rock and roll, it is, uh, uh, well, okay, let's do this. Here are two recordings that are great to listen to back to back. These are two recordings of a song that I think everybody will recognize, Hound Dog. The first one is by one of the very last of the female vocalists who sang in the blues priestess style, Big Mama Thornton. This is her recording of Hound Dog. That recording's from 1952, so obviously it's in in its time. It was an old-fashioned recording. It was a callback to classic blues and the blues priestesses. The guitar was in a real picking style, mm-hmm. and it was at the forefront of the sound. Well, it, it established the rhythm. Yeah, you know, no no drum set. No drum, drum sets set out. Again. Uh, and of course, uh, uh, Thornton did the, the growling and the scatting. I mean, I mean, she was totally in the, in the idiom, right? So, uh, then of course, here is the much more famous version of Hound Dog recorded by Elvis Presley. You ain't nothing but a hound dog, Okay, confession time. I, I've just never really gotten Elvis. I, like, <laughs> well, it, anybody's preferences aside, what's amazing to me is Big Mama Thornton recorded her version of Hound Dog in 1952, and that Elvis recording is from 1956. So we see in a really short window of time in the 1950s the evolution of classic blues slash rhythm and blues into rock and roll. Yeah. Well, I mean, and the Elvis uh, version has has I guess it's it's more recognizable to modern ears just because okay we've got I mean, we've got a drum set that's like establishing the rhythm you know uh, instead of the guitar and we've got a bass line uh, <laughs> that's that's very a clear a very yeah. clear bass line right this is the chord well what's interesting yeah. is like the bass line is playing that Afro Cuban rhythm beam 
bum, bean, bean. So still clearly it's coming out of blues. This music is still in a, in a, a larger sense blues music. Uh, you know, the other thing that I think that makes that recording sound much more recognizable to modern ears is the production. Sun Records, our first modern recording studio. And so that the kind of sound that was produced in that studio is uh, a touchstone, I think, in, in, in our cultural imagination most definitely yeah because before i mean how many mics did they, like because everything's mic'd separately now right or, right on the, right. On the elvis recording but before I, I, they, it's not everything right as far as i know it was a room I, I mic know, it was a room I'm mic like, and well and like to me the the biggest difference to my ears is that uh it was treated as the creation of an artifact whereas recordings prior to that were treated as capturing a performance yeah and so, obviously, what you do technically, you're going to use more microphones and you're going to try to do the uh, different things. But but it's that conceptual shift of, wait a minute, a recording doesn't only have to be the capturing of a, a live moment of music making. It can be actually a sculpture, a musical sculpture unto itself that can't really exist in the real world. It can be its own thing. And with those Elvis uh, Sun uh, uh, record sessions is that and, and uh, what's his name? Uh Norm Petty that worked with Buddy Holly around the same time frame, mid fifties, nineteen fifty six. But uh, another important early rock and roll record that I wanted to play is uh, a little bit of uh, Little Richard. This is Long Tall Sally, also from nineteen fifty hear a lot of things present in that that we mentioned um mm-hmm. one other thing that i wanted to highlight is that uh with with little richard you hear an emphasis on what as they say the one the first beat of each measure that wasn't there previously in mm-hmm. in uh, rhythm and blues or in other early it's rock and roll and four, yeah. yeah it's two and four two and four and he's still emphasizing two and four yeah yeah but they're but, landing on the, the one digs in yeah especially the especially the one of every four bar uh chunk mm-hmm. Uh, and then, but even in Long Tall Sally, you hear where all the music cut. There is no beats two and th- two, three and four. But I'm Bombita, boom, yeah, boom. So there's that break, that bridge strain where the band only plays on beat one, yeah. So and and that gives it like a real kineticism, yeah. That is, I think, very characteristic of the style we call rock and roll as distinct from its immediate predecessors, uh, 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 rhythm and blues, or even classic blues. Another important thing, and we don't really want to uh, go down this rabbit hole too much. Or do we? <laughs> I know, because I'm certainly not equipped to talk about this set of issues. But there is a whole set of cultural issues around this music that I don't want to seem like we're ignoring at all. Uh, uh, but you get into uh, a lot of things that aren't about the music itself and you know our our podcast is about music and and ideas uh but it is worth noting that that to a great degree rock and roll was the version of the blues that was marketed to white audiences for the first time in a really uh overt and concerted way and elvis uh partly because he is uh was white himself uh was one of the first breakout stars but of course the other early uh rock and roll stars, Little Richard, 
uh, Fats Domino, um, other Chuck people. Berry. Chuck Berry, thank you. Not Fats <laughs> Domino, Chuck Berry. Uh, Chuck Berry, thank you. We're, we're black artists, but uh, um, this was the first time that style really emerged uh, and was consciously marketed to white American listeners. So that's worth noting without yeah. without getting into to any of the questions of authorship or authenticity or things like that that are certainly worth discussing. But um, uh, not by us, not by us, because we're talking about the music itself, yeah. the, you know, the, the creative work uh, itself. So that's that's rock and roll. And in terms of the of kind of the story of the blues or the family tree of the blues, Rock sort of wanders off and and goes on its own journey. It's its own branch now of of the American. We're going to talk about journey. (laughs) If we were to follow (laughs) the branch of the family tree that rock and roll is, we would we would definitely have to talk about journey at some point. But uh, I want to stay on the 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 trunk of our conversation a little more uh, because there's another important growth of blues out of rhythm and blues and classic blues that isn't rock and roll and that's soul music that's really the next evolution of the blues proper that we hear the next stylistic transformation to stay with the uh highfalutin name of the the theme that we're exploring here and soul music is significant i mean it's significant in and of itself because it's it's just so damn good it's so good and so culturally uh um uh, important, you know, impactful, uh, but also it was a uh, a reinfusion of blues music with social themes very directly because the new musical influence on the blues with soul is gospel, and gospel comes out of the African American worship experience, of course, and so there are a lot of themes of social justice, social inequality, and things that find their way into soul music that were not there in rhythm and blues or even in classic blues classic blues and folk blues tended well folk blues uh, actually i'm sorry did tend to have classic blues tended to be more about the singer's personal experiences um uh, as and r&b tended to be a little bit more about you know having a good partying and having a good time yeah and so with soul there's kind of uh uh i mean it's look a lot of soul music's about having a good time but there's it's essentially the the practice in african-american churches of testifying becomes translated into this music. It's almost musical testifying is a good way to describe the stylistic um, growth of blues music so what, what in you what we call soul. So what I'm going to play for you is a little bit of Otis Redding. Too long to stop now. Yeah, I, I love that. Uh, but I, I actually, since uh, <laughs> what what defines soul exactly? Because I'm, I'm pretty familiar with like Motown. You know, you mean uh, the what are record, the characteristics you know? of it? Uh, yeah, uh, like what what makes it soul exactly? Like when and when do you when where, where are the lines drawn? I guess. Well, I don't know. Like, I mean, I don't know that it is. 
particularly instructive to ever draw lines. I think if I had a point in this whole conversation, it would be to blur all the lines and to show that it is one long progression. And if we were to able, I mean, if we if we really wanted to drill down and make a research paper out of it, to Which find to find literally like like construct a timeline of important recordings, I think what you would have is a long gray area that had a distinct starting point because it's where you chose to start, but that's it. Um, so this is all an evolution, and I think what, what for me distinguishes soul is that it is the pace of change in rhythm and blues. The, so rhythm and blues was, was really uh, an acceleration of material from classic blues. This is the reverse. I think it's a great slowing down. So you're particularly like that Otis Redding, uh, not to say that all soul music has to be slow, but like the the cooks. the guitar is not gonna gonna go mm, chak 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 chak. It's gonna arpeggiate the chord first of all, and it's gonna do it pretty slowly. You know, uh, the drummer may not play for a long time. Um, and the band gets bigger actually. They add a horn section, but like you hear in that Otis Redding recording, it's just vocalist and guitar for most of the track. Yeah. Uh, so it's almost like you know he's a preacher and he's got a backup band who's just punctuating hits and he's he's preaching you know except instead of a sermon it's a secular kind of testifying he's he's testifying about his love to a woman is probably the most common subject trope in in terms yeah. of lyrics i guess the main reason for my question is because so many very different kinds of music are called soul you know um yeah and it it um it dominated. And it definitely has something in common. It like. was the dominant style on uh, the so-called R&B charts of the 1960s. Uh, I don't like to think about it in that way, though, because that's you get into really racist stuff about how the markets were, the the markets and the tabulating of listeners and who was what music was marketed to whom was really racially motivated in a way that you know, uh, as a child of the end of the 20th century, I'm totally uncomfortable with. Um, but uh, it dominated basically the black music charts, the R&B charts through the 60s. So um, the music that you're going to get during that time is going to be a mix of everything, I think. So I don't think that I can give you a pure answer. I think that soul is as much a feeling to the music, uh, a passionate intensity, a passionate personal intensity. Yeah. Uh, with a gospel flavor, yeah, I mean that's is is maybe as clear a that, description of the style. That's certainly, really present, <laughs> you know. And I think any soul music that you listen to, that passionate personal intensity of the singer's point of view, and and what usually he we're back to normally male vocalists, um, but not exclusively. No, not at uh, all. not at all have to say and that's why you can have up-tempo soul as well and soul i mean people still make soul music it is its own fertile branch of this if we're in a you know uh genre tree or family tree of music but i think that uh, you can see that it's uh where are we great great grandchild at this point of of folk blues. I, I haven't been keeping score i'm not sure how many generations down we are one we're we're one two, three, we're fourth generation now, fourth or fifth generation. Um, but interestingly, it's the slowing down of the material, to my ear, connects it back to folk blues, back to the very beginning, more so than like rhythm and blues. To me, it's an easier connection to make. Okay. Uh, so it sounds bluesier. 
And then when you hear, I think, like, you know, the mainstream blues-inspired rock artist of the 60s, like Janis Joplin, she's doing part blues, part rock, part soul, because yeah. a lot of her tracks, she's testifying. And that gospel element, that is definitely soul. Okay. That's definitely soul. That makes sense. So not religious, but rel- with religiosity. <laughs> it's it, Would that be a way to describe it? No, but okay. Because it, it, definitely, it definitely ain't sacred music. No. It is very secular in theme. Um, uh, so, so, yeah, but by like, by, by like 1968 or so, um, uh, the mainline practice of soul music had fallen off the charts. It had fallen out of the mainstream, and it had mainly transmuted into what I think at this point is the next most significant style to emerge in this uh, lineage from folk blues, and that is funk. Which I, I, I actually think is probably the most important. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I am certain there are, are episodes of huge. this podcast to come where we will talk about funk. Nothing in, but funk. Nothing but in different aspects of it. I mean, I think that funk, and we've talked about this before, is a really significant source music. It, it is its own proto music. Uh, well, it does. It does. Well, let let. What's your next example before we talk too much? Before about we talk it? too much about it, uh, of course, the uh, uh, most prominent funk artist that anybody could could name is James Brown, and is considered to be the uh, originator of the style primarily, and the Godfather of Soul, and the Godfather of Soul. But that's I always thought uh, as a kid, especially why. Well, if he's, his music is funk, why is he called the Godfather of Soul? And it's because funk music came right out of soul music. And even James Brown, he was a soul musician before he started experimenting with these stylistic changes uh, uh, and gave us in uh, 1967, 1968, what we now know as funk. So funk is uh, a child of soul music with a healthy infusion from rock music, particularly, according to Brown himself, uh, Chuck Berry and Little Richard's emphasis on one, on the Mm -hmm. one of the bar. What Brown did, the most obvious feature of early funk, is that he put all of the kinetic energy and the rhythmic focus on beat one in four-bar groupings, and two and four now are not there. Our backbeat rhythm, it's all about the one, as they say. So let's, uh, before we talk about it too much, this is uh, Papa's Got a Brand New Bag from 1967. I, I was actually hoping for a big payback, but oh, I will take, I will take brand new bag. really different like really high energy yeah um uh i think the biggest difference to me is the rhythmic feel and it creates funk creates a really intense rhythmic groove well it's super tight you know everything's just right in the pocket and 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 the style it's afro-cuban influence in this in this case came through new orleans and New Orleans funk was really influential to James Brown, and his rhythm section used a very common Afro-Cuban rhythm 
uh, to great effect. And it's, it sounds like this. So each backbeat is a snare drum. So it's doom, doom, tap, doom, doom, tap, doom, doom, tap, doom, yeah. doom, tap, right? And you hear it in that clip we just heard. If you go back, you can listen. That's mainly the rhythm that his drum set player is playing. And uh, uh, that particular rhythm is not only ubiquitous in funk, I mean, it became like signature, but like that just looping on that syncopation and and causing it to feel so intense. Now we just call it music. And so highly, highly kinetically charged. Yeah. Like that to me is a thing that distinguishes it from, you know, rhythm and blues or soul okay. that would have come right okay. before it. Uh, also, uh, uh, it, it like intensifies its focus on being groove based with the guitar instead of playing you know, harmonic accompaniment. No, it's just a little... It's, it's, it's staying yeah. on court. Yeah, and it's more of a, like halfway to a percussion instrument. Yeah. And it's these really tight, repeated riffs. Mm, uh, mm, and playing its own percussive pattern. Yeah. You know, so like everybody's grooving. That locks every, in with everything else. Every yeah. instrument is locking into a groove and, and, is, and without is used at least yeah. partially as a percussion instrument. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so it creates like the, uh, the summative effect of all these grooves creates what we feel as that really ineffable or indefinable feeling of funk. Like, like, man, that music's funky. And I think probably all our listeners are nodding their heads going, yeah, I know what that means. If you say something's just really, man, it's just really funky. Um, there's a particular There's a lot, a lot of different, different rhythms going on, and they don't, they don't step on top of each other. You know, it's like they each thing's in its own place rather than... Then everybody like oh coalescing on two and four or on the one, but it's, well like, they get together right. on the one, but like everything else is kind of like hanging out there. Right. Or yeah. everybody kind of filling a role, you know, like yeah. you're the bass line and you're filling out the harmony and you're you know, uh, uh, everybody has their groove and they're all playing percussively, mm -hmm. and so it's kind of like giant, you know, percussion ensemble music. But this uh, you pointed out this is early funk and it still sounds. Uh, a lot like rhythm and blues yeah. and, and, and a lot like uh, early rock and roll even. Uh, but the track you mentioned uh, is, is more like mature. <laughs> it's, it's like more mature funk. It's more pared down, right? Yeah. Let's, let's hear big payback. I love that song so much. I, I quote that in my daily life constantly, and people don't, people don't know what the hell I'm talking about. That but. feeling, like, like okay, so that recording is 1973. I yeah. was born in 1972. That is in my bones, yeah. that music, and the feel of funk music. Well, just comparing it to the last track you played, it's so much more pared down. Um, and it's, it's It really is. It's it's empty almost. Like yeah, and, and which is great. Um, but like, uh, one of the, I think the key features of funk is like, yeah, of course it's all, you know, it's all about the one, but also the, the, the structure of everything is based around the baseline, which is sort of just like how most modern music is made really is like, the, that's how pervasive the influence of funk is, is that like, 
you know, you start with a bass line and a drum track, but like that was but, pretty but, innovative. But structure on the bass line, not in the sense like Bach wrote a bass line to anchor harmony, not four right. part. I mean, because their music for hundreds of years has been based on a bass line in that sense. Yeah, but but where that that's actually like the key, um, like the element, <laughs> like like like, like like bass line as drum part also. Yeah. Well, and and it's just like, uh, you know, it's everything's built around that. It's like you start with with a with a beat and a bass line, and everything's built around that, and not not like like these are going through chord progressions. It's like the that's the root of everything. Everything plays off of that. What's interesting to me is that is how radically slowed down the harmonic rhythm is, mm-hmm. and that's uh, uh, you know that the chord changes. They're they're just they sit on a chord forever. Yeah, they don't move from chord to chord to chord to chord. This is music that is sl- slowed down in that sense, and that's where I hear it as a, a child of soul because soul did slow down the rate of harmonic change a lot um, for different reasons. But in funk, they would just you know sit on a chord because it was about the groove. And yeah, the, the feel. you establish a groove, and and you can do whatever you want in that chord you know it, it's like it's you don't have to change chords to keep for yeah, musical exactly. interest right yeah, exactly and, you, and and it's like and all you got to really stick to is that bass line I mean, but you know you that. listen to brown sing and all the ah, and the hat and the, yeah. all that stuff that's testifying i mean that's soul music that's that's coming out of soul music and then i hear back to uh classic blues the choir in the background ah, Shout chorus is back and forth. You know, this is stuff that's been in the blues since before there was blues. Back when it was, you know, people having cakewalks in their backyard and and you know before any of this stuff. And and of course, like we said, funk then becomes uh, hugely seminal in its own right. And I think in this like chunk that we've listened to from folk blues in the early 1900s to this last James Brown, Brown recording in 1973 that like the emergence of mature funk style um uh it's easy to hear how it's just one continuum of evolve of transforming musical style um Mm -hmm. uh uh, but then when we arrive at funk we're far enough along that continuum that now we're to something completely different like i feel like kind of the switch has been totally thrown and we're in new territory and of course the music that comes out of funk and the fusions of rock and funk is is everything is <laughs> everything that we live in now but that's the subject for another episode that now that um i realize that that episode's right there waiting to be made i kind of want to make it sooner rather than later but uh uh, so that's that's it. That's the that's the narrative that I wanted to share with you, uh, Dave, and with you, our listeners. Um, hope you found it instructive. Do you feel like you uh, know a little bit more? No, no, learned, no. You weren't a damn thing. You weren't listening to anything no. I said. You just were asleep until the music came on. Just throwing it on. Yeah. <laughs> so I hope that uh, for our listeners, maybe you found it a little edifying. Uh, and that you will listen to some of this music maybe with um, new ears and renewed interest. I love, one of the reasons I always try to, when I find a music that I love, I try to understand its context and where it came from, is that I, I feel like that does add a dimension of enjoyment and of being able to savor music when I can hear the music that came before it in it. You know? So you're trying to tell me, that knowing a little bit more about something makes it more satisfying. I know that is not a common cultural Bullshit, message I in say. 2015. 
But especially with music, because, you know, we left this theme aside, but talk about when we were talking about um, classic blues, blues priestesses in the 20s, how it became commercialized. You know, obviously the commodification of music continued rampantly apace through the 20th century to the point where in the era that you and I grew up in, it's like totally disposable. It's what am I listening to this week, this month, this year? And uh, then you move on. Uh, it became just, you know, hyper commodified in that sense. And I am happy to see that one part of uh, music listening is influenced by the internet and internet culture is that listeners are gaining a broader, you know, reach and, and, and contextualization of the creative work that they love. Well, this is great. Where did it come from? Oh, that's great too. Where did that come from? Uh, and you know, like I say about music, you start thinking about it and asking questions, it'll take you anywhere. Yeah. Um, so anyway, that's this episode. It was fun. Yeah. All right. Good times. Thanks for listening. (laughs) Uh, I think for the next episode, we have something completely different for you, but, uh, as always, thanks for listening. Uh, you can, uh, if you liked any of the music that we talked about and played little snippets of here, please acquire them, uh, purchase them yourselves. Uh, pay for music, pay for music, (laughs) reward the artists who made this music, please. Uh, but get it, listen to it. Uh, uh, and, 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 you know, listen actively as always and listen, uh, courageously and explore. And hopefully this has given you a little bit of fuel for that also write us some emails or something like do we have we even we have do have an email up? see i'm really bad about that self-promotion thing but if you, i'm not talking about self, i'd like to hear from people if if whoever, you're we people are listening like we have some click throughs so. yeah we do the the the, the internet tells us people are listening to the podcast if you'd like to talk to us shoot us an email yeah. it's uh loose filter at gmail.com that's loose filter one word at gmail.com uh, uh, we'd love to hear from you yeah, if tell you, us what we're doing right what we're doing wrong yeah what do you like what do you suck? hate I tell Stuart to quit droning on tell Dave to pay attention <laughs> no <laughs> uh, or if you have a topic or something you'd like to hear us talk about we uh, certainly are open to suggestion we love all music and would love to talk about anything you might find interesting so uh, yeah do feel free to, to, to drop us a line you can find all of the podcasts on our SoundCloud page that's at soundcloud.com slash loose filter. And of course, you can find uh, the whole website and everything we do at loosefilter.com. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.